Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity to be here, to focus on Your mighty Word. We all need areas in our own soul that need to be straightened out. There's questions that need to be answered for us to be prepared to give the Gospel powerfully and accurately. And so we pray that You will help us to focus and concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're all here because tonight is a very important um, message. I just wish there were more people here. You know, you never know when there's something that is desperately needed. We all need what we're going to cover tonight, and I might cover it more than once. But um, it's just important for people to recognize that they need to avail themselves of the Word of God consistently. Because probably all of you, myself, and those who aren't here that maybe could and should be here are going to be tested over what we're going over this evening. They're not going to be tested by me. Uh, Satan is going to make sure that they're going to be tested. And if you're not prepared, then you're going to be in the loser category, which we don't want to um, wind up in. We started out a few weeks ago looking at Catholicism in detail. Then we went and looked at Mormonism in detail. Then we looked at Jehovah Witnesses in detail. The reason I did that is because these are the three main, I'll just categorize them as religions, that profess faith in Jesus Christ. And what I have been really emphasizing is that just because someone says that they believe in Jesus Christ, does not necessarily mean that they are indeed a believer. And any time you add something to faith alone in Christ alone, then you don't receive the free gift of eternal life because it is only given as a gift. Any works added to it cancels it. You don't get it because God only gives it as a gift. Now, that's what I've been zeroing in on. I guess I'll put the... Notes up here so you can see where we're going. James chapter 2, the dreaded chapter. And I'm coming from this at a completely different prospect than I have in the past. It's very pragmatic. It's something that we all need to metabolize into our soul because hopefully you all are emphasizing the fact that salvation is by grace through faith, period, and no works. And when you do that, those who profess to know Jesus Christ or to have faith in Him, but they add works to it, very possibly might try to undermine the gospel by going to this chapter. The essence of the true gospel is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. All unbelievers challenge this statement. Some of them reject the notion that Christ has anything to do with salvation. Now, we're just talking about unbelievers across the board. Those who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ don't go to James 2. 
they could care less about James 2. Uh, this would be Muslims and Hindus and um, Buddhists, these type of people. Uh, they don't care anything about James 2. You, ha you need to focus on the deity of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation and so forth with those people. However, that's not who we come in contact with the most. While others profess faith in Christ but allege that works must be added to faith to receive salvation. Those are the ones that are going to challenge you, those that have a little knowledge of the Word, by going to James chapter 2. It's done all the time. We will focus on the latter group. Those are those who are professing in Christ but add works to salvation. The majority of this group is so biblically illiterate that they cannot come up with anything in the Bible to refute the assertion that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Most of them, most of the people who, who profess to know Jesus Christ don't know enough about the Bible to go to James chapter 2. Now, probably that would involve maybe Catholics and Mormons more than others, but Jehovah Witnesses are probably the ones that are going to take you there first. And I don't care where you go, they're going to find you. And you don't need to be intimidated. You don't have to be afraid. What you need to do is be ready. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to be prepared for these people. Not because they're our enemy. We're trying to defeat them. Quite the contrary. We love them enough to tell them the truth and be prepared so that God can use you to save them because He loves them also. Usually the only thing necessary to get them to question their unbelief in a faith plus works salvation is to question their logic. How many times have you heard me emphasize the importance of asking questions? I cannot emphasize that enough. And yet, I know because I'm just like you for the most part when it comes to talking to people about the Word of God or witnessing to someone. The first thing we want to do is we go to our default mode, which is just preaching at them, especially if they're making some type of assertion that works are necessary for salvation. Our first instinct is to say, oh, no, that's not right, and then start giving them a bunch of information, which their ears are closed. They could care less. They're waiting for you to give them a chance so that they can come back with some kind of rebuttal. They're not even listening to what you say usually. And so we need to get out of that mode of trying to, I guess you could call it a debate mode, and you think you might be doing a great job because uh, you know to a degree what you're talking about. But just try this one on for size. I think it works a lot better. So, uh, they who think that uh, salvation is by works, the best thing to do is question their logic. Don't even get into the details yet. Because what they're essentially saying is that the Bible says that you must work for your salvation, eternal salvation. So here's the, here's the first thing you want to do. You're going to question their logic. This is the first question. If a person must work in order to be saved, why did Christ have to go to the cross? 
isn't that logical and reasonable? And listen, don't just throw that question out there and then go on to the next thing. Wait for an answer. You might just park there a while and have them think that over. In fact, you shouldn't even speak again until they respond to it. And you don't know how they're going to respond to it, but at least you have questioned their logic and this is something the Holy Spirit can pierce that, that facade that they have that they think is truth, however it's error. This is, this is pointed at the illusion that you have to work in order to be saved. Here's another question you can have with regards to their logic. While hanging on the cross, Christ said, it is finished. By the way, that's John 19.30. I think I didn't look that one up. I'm going by memory, so you might check that one out anyway. Um, anyway, while he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Was he lying? And what do you do? You wait. They might not know that Christ said it is finished on the cross. And you might get in a discussion just about that. What, what does it mean that it is finished? Of course, you're, you're talking, what was he there for? He was there to pay the penalty for sin. You might also note that before the darkness hit, or maybe I should say after the darkness hit, he no longer referenced the other two members of the Trinity or God the Father. He didn't say my Father, but he said my God, my God, because the judgment of the world was upon him. After that judgment had been completed, he again said, Father, into my, thy hands I commit my spirit. So then again, the relationship was back. On the cross, he referenced my God, my God, because it was, he, he was under judgment. Once the judgment had hit and God was propitiated, he was satisfied, then again it's Father. And that's when he said, it is finished. So he's talking about salvation. And if, just, just get prepared to ask question after question. If they said, well, that doesn't mean that salvation was paid for. It doesn't mean that. Rather than going on and trying to defend that, just ask, well, what does it mean? What do you think it means if it's not talking about the, the mission was accomplished and his mission was to take care of the sin problem? You see, I want you to start thinking in terms of questions because I don't know what they're going to come back with. But whatever it is, you're going to question it unless they understand what this is referring to. Here's another one to question their logic. Would an all-wise God send his son to do only a partial job of saving sinful mankind? Would an all-wise God send His Son to pay for your past sins or just pay for Adam's original sin and all the rest leave undone? Is that an all-powerful and all-wise God? Does that sound logical that He would have a plan like that? And then what do you do? You wait. You wait to see what they're going to say. See, any reasonable person would recognize, no, well, no, that, that doesn't seem to fit. Here's the last one with regards to attacking their logic. If sinful man was unable to save himself before the cross, how can he after the cross? See, many of these people think that Jesus Christ came to make mankind savable. 
And some of them think, well, He paid for all your sins up to the point that you believe in Jesus Christ. But from that point on, it's up to you. In fact, that's what Jehovah's Witnesses think. So let's, let's look at that logic. Let's question that logic. If sinful man could do nothing to save himself before the cross, you explain to me how he's going to be able to do that after the cross. Is that not a good question? So you're not arguing. You're just trying to understand their logic. This isn't debating. This isn't arguing. This is just saying, okay, you made an assertion. Let's look at it. I want to look at the logic to this. Isn't it reasonable that what you say is truth? Then we're going to look at if it's biblical. But first of all, does it even make sense? And to most people, most unbelievers, they don't go any deeper than that anyway. And your main goal is to get them to think, maybe for the first time, with regards to who and what God is and what His plan of salvation is. And you do that by asking questions. Now, I've gave you three or uh, four questions. You might come up with some in your own, of your own, or you might like one of these more than the others. But... Get something in your soul ready to respond when you recognize someone is saying, oh, yes, well, you have to be baptized. You have to be confirmed. You have to be a good person. You have to be a member of this church. You can lose yourself. Go on and on. Have something to start. Okay, let's, let's look at that. In other words, you have to work. You see, some of these people, well, none of those three categories that I mentioned there are too hesitant about answering. When you ask them, are you saying that you have to work in order to be saved, most of them, if they think about it, Jehovah's Witnesses don't even have to think. Absolutely, oh, yes, you have to work. And so then you just take that logic and take it to its end result. For those who have some knowledge of the Bible, the place that they most often go to to support their works-based salvation is James chapter 2. Usually they will only cite the last Five words of verse 26. Here they are. Faith without works is dead. You've just given them the gospel. You explain that eternal salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. The moment that you believe, and you can, you can cite Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Romans 4, 5, John 3, 36, John 3, 18, Titus 3, 5, Galatians 2, 16. You can give them that whole range that, that, that's backing up what you say. Well, I've seen this happen before. And they come back with one little phrase. Yeah, but James 2 says, this is the last five words in the last verse of chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. That is enough to defeat an unprepared believer. <laughs> I mean, they're dead in the water. Everything that you've told them about faith alone and Christ alone is shut down because they mention these five words because people don't know how to handle it. They don't know where to go when they say that. And they don't even explain it. I mean, at least you would think someone would say, okay, so what? The ball's in your court. You explain to me what you're trying to say. But most of the time, the mediocre believer takes for granted that they're saying that your faith just won't cut it because the Bible says it's dead. Well, we're going to look into that. But again... The best way to respond to this is what? Ask them 
questions, don't respond by arguing with them and quoting and all the rest of it. Make them defend their assertions because they cannot do it. It's not logical and it's not biblical. And your job is to point this out to them. Not to try to embarrass them or rend an argument, but to save them. It's the questions that penetrate their soul because they don't have an answer for it and they know they don't. Okay, here's a question. They've, they've made this assertion, faith without works is dead. You should ask them. Do you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And you'll see where this is going. What you're doing, and, and it, <laughs> I can put it this way, and I guess in a way we are, we're, we're setting a trap for them is what we're doing. And, and that's okay. I mean, you can do that. We're going to lose, use logic as well as the Word of God to trap them in their own fallacy so that they can see it for themselves. It's not going to be an argument. We ask them questions, and their answers are going to lead them to a place where they say, this is, this is phony baloney. And the Holy Spirit will take all that you're saying and penetrate that dark soul. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, by the way. Not, not the question, but all Scripture is what? God-breathed, theonoustos, inspired. So, they will probably say yes because they just quoted, quoted it to you to prove their point. In other words, they quoted Scripture to prove their point. Faith without works is dead. And so it's very unlikely that you say, you ask them the question, do you think that Scripture is inspired? Unlikely that, oh, no, it's not inspired. Well, then why did you quote it? Why would you quote something that you don't even believe is the Word of God? I mean, that doesn't make much sense, does it? So uh, they'll probably say yes, but if they say no, then ask them, why are you quoting it then? I mean, if it's just another book, if it's not inspired, I don't understand why you're quoting it to me. Can you explain that? And then wait. You know what people do? They ask a question, and before the person answers it, they're already talking again. That is a very poor salesman that would do that. And what you're, you're in a way, you're, what you're, you're selling the gospel. You're not pressuring. You're just as, as wise as a serpent. And you are as gentle as doves. You're not arguing. It's not about an argument or a debate. It's simply asking them questions that force them to look at how ridiculous their assertion is. If they say they believe some of it is inspired and some of it is not, ask them, how do you know which part is and which part isn't? You see the kind of questions I'm saying? Just think. You don't, you're not under pressure. You're just talking to somebody. If they say, well, I believe some of it is inspired, but, but not all of it. Have you ever heard anybody say anything? Or some people say, oh, well, I believe part of the Bible and some part I don't. Well, what's your criteria? How do you decide what you accept and what you don't? How do you accept what part is inspired and what part isn't? And then what do you do? Wait for an answer. Here's another question. Do you believe that the Bible contradicts itself? These are the only two questions you have to remember when someone brings up James 2.2. First of all, do you think that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and nine times out of ten they're going to say, oh, yes, absolutely. They're going to, 
They're going to try to substantiate what they just said that came out of the Bible. But then you want to take it one step further because this is going to really set the trap for them. Do you believe that the Bible contradicts itself? And by the way, Hebrews 6.18 demonstrates that God does not contradict Himself. And by the way, if they said it does, then again I would question if it contradicts itself. Um, well, again, why are you quoting it? So uh, they will probably say no for the same reason stated above because they just used the Bible. However, if they do say no, ask them where. Now you've got to get past this. You don't want to ignore it. If they say, well, yes, sometimes the Bible, it, it, the Bible contradicts itself. My first response would be, well, why are you using it then? And how do you know where it contradicts itself and where it doesn't? And where does it? Because we're using the Word of God and you have... See, they're the one that brought up the issue of faith without works is dead. The last five uh, words in verse 26. They didn't know it, but they just put their head in a noose when they did that. They're the one quoting Scripture to me. Of course, it's out of context. It's heretical what they've done to it. They've twisted it. But they used it so that gives me liberty to turn it around and set the trap for them. Now, once you have agreed on these two questions, you can point out what appears to be a contradiction. They've already said that they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, inspired, They've already agreed that, no, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Now you're going to point out a, a, a problem, a contradiction, and now we have to deal with it. Or they have to deal with it anyway. You're going to show them how. Am I going too fast? Are you all getting this? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, well, no... When it says, do you, yeah, when it says, do you believe that the Bible contradicts itself? They're probably going to say no. Okay, yeah, you're right. Should say yes. If they do say yes, thank you. There. Ask them where. Okay. So once you have agreement on those two questions, don't move on till you have agreement with those because if you don't have agreement with those, you might as well be talking to a post you're not going to get anywhere. Once you agree on those two things, now you have common ground and you can talk to them. Now these are the things, you can go to James chapter 2, and they're going to like this part because you're setting up a contradiction. And don't hide from these verses. And don't debate. All you want to do at this point is point them out. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can, can that faith save him? Now, the, the apparent answer usually is, well, I'll put this again. Well, it, it's no, but it's for a different reason. James 2.20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? Useless. James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James 2.26, 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, he's probably, as you're quoting these verses, he's probably going over there, yeah, you're making my case. Boy, he's probably swelling up like a big blowfish. He thinks this is going to be easy. And all you're doing is about to drop the hammer to demonstrate that we have a problem. You just said that the Word of God is inspired and it doesn't contradict itself. Now, we're going to look at a problem here. And then, see, this is all by James. Then we're going to look at what Paul says. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 4, 5. Y'all, I don't need to quote these. You already know them. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who what? Does not work. His faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Galatians 2.16. I'm not going to read it. It's kind of long. Three times it says in that one verse, it's not of works, it's by grace. Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Now look at this. You want to ask Him some more questions now. Are James and Paul at, at, at odds with each other? Is there disharmony between them? Did God inspire James to say that works are necessary for our salvation and inspire Paul to say that they are not? Is God confused? I hope you remember to do that. Because what you've just done is sprung the trap. Now what is He going to do? By the way, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's not, God is not confused. And He did not write gibberish anywhere in His mighty Word. Can you see a glaring problem here? You've just... And what you've done, you haven't solved anything. All you want to do at this point is to show Him, wait a minute, from what you said, those five words means that we've, you know, doesn't jive. And I'm trying to understand this. You said that it's inspired and it's, it doesn't contradict itself. And now I'm showing you what Paul says and what James says, and it doesn't mesh. What's the deal? And what do you do when you ask a question like that? Wait. Don't just ask it and just press on. Wait for an answer. You're going to learn more about where that person is and what you need to talk about by waiting than anything else you can say. Certainly, there is an answer to what appears to be a conundrum. Since all Scripture must harmonize, the way to ensure accuracy is interpreting the Bible. And interpreting the Bible is to compare Scripture with Scripture. We must dig deeper to find the answer and we will start by noticing the agreement and harmony between the Scriptures written by these two great apostles. Now, they're not going to have an answer. They can't have an answer. You have just demonstrated that... You see, the only thing that... I didn't finish my sentence, but I want to say this. The only perspective they have, the only thing they can see is James's perspective. 
The whole theology is built on these verses in chapter 2. It's very possible, probably even probable, that they never even heard of these other verses before. They had no idea they even existed in the Bible. So when you point them out, you say, well, this is what Paul says. This is what James says. There seems to be a conundrum. Do they clash? Which one is right? Because they're not, they're definitely not saying the same thing. Are they? One is saying by faith alone, the other one is saying by faith plus works. Are they not? Do you think by that point that he's going to be thinking? You think that is going to make him start questioning and thinking about things he's never thought about possibly before? I think so. So we have to dig deeper into Scripture to make these harmonize. We have to harmonize or else we might as well toss the Bible out if God contradicts Himself. Here's the first major key that you need to remember, and that is both are writing to believers, not unbelievers. That itself will jerk the rug out from under them for the most part. And I've got Scriptures here to demonstrate that. Because they're alleging this is written to unbelievers and they're giving, the, the, James is giving information for them to know how to be saved. That is the gospel as far as they're concerned. It's not, the, it's not the biblical gospel. It is a false gospel. But in their minds, that's the only gospel that they know about. So, James chapter 2 verse 1. My brethren, capitalized, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. In James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, James is going to give a laundry list where they're missing the mark because they're not making application of what they know. And he references them as brethren, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1? And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh and to babes in Christ. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of the major chapters because right off the bat it starts comparing a carnal believer as opposed to a spiritual believer. That's one place we can substantiate the fact that believers are either spiritual or carnal because that's the terms that Paul used. But he's calling them brethren. I did a funeral one time. In fact, y'all remember it, the Twigs over there in the American Legion Hall. Remember that funeral? I had a man come up to me and he started uh, talking to me about salvation because I always give the gospel at a funeral. And guess what he said? I was telling him about faith alone and Christ alone. And guess what he brought up? James chapter 2. And guess what he said? Faith without works is dead. And he kind of grinned. He just, I got him now. I said, well, look, let's open the Bible. It says here, brethren. He's calling them brethren. He says, well, yeah, but he's calling them brethren because they were Jews. They were his Jewish brethren. I said, really? 
Uh, how about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Paul calls them brethren. The Corinthians weren't Jews. That's a term for believers. However, if they don't buy that, it's okay. I'm just telling you, be prepared. What you're doing is demonstrating, it's important that you demonstrate that they're talking, both Paul and James, to people who have accepted the gospel. Now here's two more scriptures, one from James, one from Paul, to demonstrate that they were talking to believers. James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Who's He talking to? He's talking to the same ones that He's talking to in chapter 2. And I don't believe that God jealously desires the Spirit which He's made to dwell in unbelievers, does He? Well, what about Paul? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He wouldn't say that to unbelievers, would he? We're substantiating the fact. He calls both Paul and James, calls them brethren. Both Paul and James makes references to the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, if at that point somebody wants to make an argument that they're still not believers, what would you do? Just think about it. I want you to formulate an answer in your mind. See, I'm going to stick to what I'm telling you to do. I ask you a question, and I'm going to wait for you to commiserate in your own mind about what you would do. You've given them these, these things. And after you've given them these to prove that they are both talking to believers, he said, well, I still don't believe that they're believers. What would you do? The best thing to do is say, oh, really? What did I just do? The ball is back in his court. He has to defend what he just said. And it can be fun because he can't do it. He'll look worse than our governor trying to say how many... <laughs> how many... <laughs> Uh, yeah, agencies and everything it was. I mean, they're going to fumble and bumble around because they can't do it. You just prove unequivocally that he's talking to believers. And if they say, well, I still don't believe it, say, oh, well, how come? And wait for an answer. The fact that they were believers is very important that, th that both Paul and James were talking to. It means that James and Paul were not writing to unbelievers for the purpose of saving them from hell. And that's the underlying idea behind their belief. They're thinking, faith without works is dead, and they're assigning it to eternal salvation. They're saying part of the gospel is you have to work your way. But if they're believers already, why would they have to be doing that? It's not, in other words, if they can understand it's believers already, then he wouldn't have to be telling them how to be saved because they're already saved, right? Now, I will add this again. 
to Jehovah's Witnesses and others, they think that a person can lose their salvation. But even if that was the case, which it isn't, but even if it was, Paul wouldn't be writing to them, I mean, James wouldn't be writing to them and telling them how to be saved because they already know it. No, they were writing believers, giving them instructions and exhorting them to grow up and stop acting like spiritual babies. That's the message both from Paul and by James and Jude, Peter, all of them. That was the message. That's, by the way, that's the message of the New Testament. It's warning, exhortations, everything for believers to wake up and quit acting like a dire. In that, I mean, there you know there are that still think like it's no different in the spiritual warning in the couple of scriptures, one from James, fourteen and fifteen. But each one of carries then when lust has consumed, if you then you're going to be giving birth to sin, and it's not going to be through irreverently, just body rightly. For this reason, many are enemies in discipline, or committing hostility. James is saying, "You back. God is coming with the paddle." It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and more much of the For since there is jealousy. Here's the second major key. The second major key is realizing that the two apostles were not talking about the same thing. Paul was talking about being justified before God, and James was talking about being justified before God and man. All right, y'all take a little mental break here while I bring up PowerPoint. I just made this today so y'all will be, get your eyes on it for the first time. Justification, two types. We have a Paul-type justification and a James-type justification. The, Paul, the kind of justification Paul was referring to occurs at salvation. James-type of salvation is referred to is after salvation. We call Paul's positional because it happens in a point of time. That's our standing. We are justified. Our position in Christ is being justified before God. James, it's not positional. It is experiential. Paul's, that type of justification takes but a moment. However long it takes for you to believe in Jesus Christ is how long it takes to be positionally sanctified before God. However, James is talking about a type of justification that takes a lifetime, that is experiential. It takes a lifetime. Justification that Paul is talking about is being justified before God. 
the type James is talking about is being justified before God and man. I used to just say being justified before man as opposed to being justified before God. But really, you are either going to be justified experientially before God or you are not. If you are not, if you are not justified before God experientially, then you're not, going to be a, you're not going to be justified before man experientially. He's going to see your hypocrisy. He's going to see your sins. He's going to see who you really are. And you're going to be judged by that person. I wish I would put this down, just thought of it. When God sees us, He sees His own righteousness. And we're not condemned. When man sees us, he sees our works. He can't see inside your soul. He can't see that righteousness. And we are judged before man by our works. We're judged before God by our faith at salvation. So it's before God and man that experiential type of righteousness The type of justification Paul was talking about is by faith alone, period. We have all those verses. I hope you all have them already in your head. To the one who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, His what? Faith is credited as righteousness. So, But now with James, it's what he's saying in verses 14 through 26, yes, we are, uh, James is talking about a justification that is by works plus, I mean, excuse me, by faith plus works. But they're not talking about the same kind of justification. Paul's justification that he's talking about before God is for all believers. All believers experience this positional sanctification before God. God. But James, that type of sanctification is only for some believers. Unfortunately, very few believers are justified before God and man by faith plus works. See, here's the thing. God expects us to work. He commands us to work. Ephesians 2.10, we were created an eternity pass for what? Good works? Yeah. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. The pipe type Paul that, uh, that Paul is talking about, justification before God, cannot be lost. Impossible. It's impossible for you to be condemned. Why? Because you are in Christ. And even the teenagers know don't they, Ashley, what it means to be in Christ? We went over that big time yesterday. I asked them all, how many of you are in Christ? All the hands went up. Good. How do you know? It says it in the Bible. You know what my next question was? Where? <laughs> and they did really good uh, last week. They came up with 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Matthew 3. Can you do that? They did it. I was so proud of them. And then we reviewed yesterday and they didn't remember either one of them. 
But, see, they're learning. So you cannot lose the one that Paul has. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. But, now with James, that type of justification can be lost. Because it has to be maintained. Paul, time, the type Paul is talking about isn't. Now, the type of justification that Paul is referring to is not rewardable. There might be some people who might want to argue that point, but, and you could maybe consider going to heaven as a reward, but it's really, it's not a reward. If anything, it would be a reward for Christ, not for us. What do we do to be able to go to heaven? We accepted the gift by believing. Uh, what's the big deal there with regards to rewards? All that reward would go to who? Jesus Christ. I don't consider it a reward. It's not rewardable. The most dumb butt believer that ever took a breath is going to heaven, and he might not even know John 3.16. Is he going to be rewarded for that? No. However, James is talking about a justification that is going to be rewardable because you have to work. You have to work for it. That's what James is telling these believers. You think you're going to be delivered because you have faith, because you have the truth of God in your soul? Because James taught it to them. You think you'll be rewarded for that? Are you going to be delivered? If you have the truth of God's Word in your soul because James taught it to them, but they're not applying any of it, are they going to be delivered from a premature death? James is saying, no way, Jose. Wake up. I'm getting ahead of myself. This wasn't where I'm going, but y'all got that? So when you when you tell someone that look, first key is what James is talking to believers. Paul is talking to believers. The second big key is that Paul and James aren't talking about the same thing. Just because they use the similar words, faith, justification. Works, all these things. The big problem is James is saying it is by works, and Paul's saying it's not. But there's no contradiction because they're not even talking about the same thing in those verses, okay? I can't tell you how important it is for you to get this straight in your soul. That's why I'm just bummed out that there's not many people here tonight because they're going to need it. And I'm not disparaging. I don't know why people, you know, they, they might have a good reason. I don't know. But no, they might. I don't know. But it just grieves me that they're not getting this into their soul because it's desperately needed. You will walk around with a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence in God because of what you know. And you can boldly speak out to people and ask them these questions. And while they're floundering, you can say, hey, guess what? 
This is not a conundrum. Paul and James aren't talking about the same thing. Both of them are talking to believers. They're not trying to give them the, the gospel. They've already had the gospel. Well, in those verses, Paul is talking about positional sanctification. Y'all have any questions for me yet? How do I get out of here? There. Huh? Okay, here's the second major key again. Oh, it's up there. Okay. It is imperative to understand this point. Believers need to be saved, not from the fires of hell, but from divine discipline which could lead to a premature death. Which believers need that? Which believers need to be saved from a premature death? All of us. That's the problem. People look at other. Well, I'm better than that person over there. I'm a believer and I'm so proud of myself. I check off everything on my little card. And they think that there's somebody. We all are warned about that. Because we all are subject to this once we get the big head. All we have to do is let arrogance fill this big head and the next thing you know, you're on God's agenda for DD. This is not to suggest that believers must maintain eternal salvation by doing good deeds. But it does mean that they must maintain their effort to grow spiritually and serve the Lord or else face the consequences. Listen to that very carefully. It doesn't mean that you have to maintain your salvation because it's, what did Christ say? It's finished. Your eternal salvation is a done deal. It doesn't have to be maintained, but there is something in your life that you do have to maintain. And that is your desire, your eagerness, your spudazzo. You have to maintain the effort to grow. I assume that's why you're here. Or else face the consequences. Once that effort to grow spiritually wanes, once it starts declining, things go into gear. Gears start to click. And here's the problem. Let's say somebody has been really, really consistent in taking in the Word. But what happens? If you're a believer that's getting consistently learning spiritual and you're growing, you've got a target on you. And Satan is going to dangle every little trinket in front of you he can. Anything to get you distracted. And once you get distracted and you quit taking in the Word and you look around, well, I still have my house. I still have my health. I don't see how anything changes. It gets easier and easier to go further down that road. And what happens is that your effort to take in the Word and be a good servant to God is gone altogether. And you, the people that this happens to don't even know it. 
And before long, what happens is their world starts unraveling. Things start coming unglued and they hit the panic button. They're not thinking divine viewpoint. Oh, that went out the window a long time ago when they quit taking in doctrine. And then they start pointing fingers at everybody and if that's not good enough, they'll point a finger at God. It's all your... Why did you let this happen to me? Why? Because they forgot these warnings. That what you do want to maintain is your effort in serving the Lord to being a good and faithful servant and you cannot do that without consistently filling your soul with that spiritual manna that you need. Then you can have confidence. You can be used by God to do all kinds of things. And that's what believers don't understand. So my point is believers do need to be saved, not from hell. They're already saved about that. But from a premature death even. I don't know about you. That gets my attention. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with regards to a premature death. The premature death, for some people, they laugh at that. I worked around construction. I worked around football players and rough and tough type guys. I'd give them the gospel. And how, well, you know, we're all going to hell. I'll meet you down there and we'll have a Budweiser. Do you like to drink boiling Budweiser? <laughs> That's what they did. We've just begun to fight in James chapter 2. It's absolutely essential that you remember these things. And don't default when someone suggests that there's some work that is needed for salvation. Just start asking them a question. You believe, the, especially the ones that bring up James chapter 2. Chances are they won't say more than five words. That's all it takes. Hell, well, faith without works is dead. Ali oxen free. Got you now, didn't I? Well, that's what's going on in their soul. And these poor, mediocre believers, you know, they just, they look like they're, I can't say everything I want to say. That's <laughs> okay, we will return to fight again Tuesday. And I don't know about, I can't wait to give you this information because it is exceedingly powerful. It works. Knowledge. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word that we can have complete and utter confidence that Your Word is inspired, that it does not contradict itself, and we want to be prepared. We want to be good and faithful servants. And we pray that you will help us to remember these things. That we will meditate on them both day and night. And we won't turn to the left nor to the right. But we will be prepared when you bring these people who Christ died for, 
who have bought the lies of Satan into our realm so that we are able to give them the really good news. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.